Good morning. For those who've braved the cold, our first very cold, very cold Sunday. It's sunny out, and that's I'll continue to praise God for that. If you're visiting with us, my name's Pastor Nate. If you haven't, uh, I encourage you to fill out one of those green cards in the pew in front of you, just to let us know that you're there. You can pass it to one of the ushers, or you can give it to me at the door, and uh, just lets us know that you're there and that you're here, not there, here with us today. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Galatians 6, and that's where we'll be today. Galatians 6, verse 1, says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are in the household of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we just thank you for today. We thank you for another chance we have to come to gather as a family to worship you, to continue to worship you through the preaching of your word and through the reading of your word. God, I just pray that you would be glorified in this time. Lord, I want to preach so that you are glorified. I want to speak of you and praise you and praise your name. And Lord, there's no amount of gifting that can do that well outside of you. So Lord, I pray by your Spirit that you would help me to preach this sermon with the necessary power and appropriate affection. Lord, please use this sermon to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. And amen. As we're finishing up our series in Galatians, we get into this passage that many of us call bearing with one another. And it reminds me of a story that I heard of a pastor in New York. A woman in the congregation said to him, Pastor, we need to see more signs and wonders. We just haven't seen enough signs and wonders, she said. The pastor responded, Ma'am, over there sits a lady who has been evicted from her apartments with her children. I would consider it a sign and wonder if you would take them into your house to live for three months. See, as a pastor, I've been told similar things before. I think every pastor has. Oh, pastor, I wish it would just be more spiritual. I wish we would be more spiritual. 
Pastor, we need more of that. Pastor, I just need to feel the Spirit here. Pastor, the Spirit isn't moving here. I wish I was as quick on my feet as that pastor was to that woman. I'm not. Perhaps you're like the first woman. I know I've been. Maybe you've asked or said similar questions. It's okay to have a great desire for the miraculous, isn't it? Our God is an awesome God, is he not? And he does do great miracles, beginning with the salvation of you, because you were dead, and now you're alive. There's nothing wrong with wanting to see God to do extraordinary things. The Bible is full of stories of God doing amazing and extraordinary things. But do not overlook or undervalue how the Spirit usually works in our lives. Through the special practical deeds of loving one another especially deeds performed within the, as Paul says in verse 10, the household of the faith. So we need a proper understanding of what God's word says about what it means to be spiritual before we can come and define and tell people that we need to be more spiritual. Before we claim that others aren't, we need to examine ourselves according to what the Bible says. Does it surprise you that many Christians talk about being, the Spirit's work in their lives, but they don't necessarily go to church or belong to a family? If a person simply does, goes from one event to another event or only watches sermons at home or does not have a biblical community, then he or she is not applying what the New Testament actually is talking about here. God gives, God saves us and empowers us by the Spirit in order that we may live in a community with believers who fulfill his mission on this world. His mission? To proclaim the gospel. So again, the question is still there. What is a Spirit-led life? Because that's what Paul is addressing here in this text. What does it look like practically to walk by the Spirit, as we looked at in chapter 5, verse 16, or to be led by the Spirit, which is in verse 18 of chapter 5, and to live by the Spirit, chapter 5, verse 25? What are the results of Spirit-filled living? See, a couple of weeks ago, we were in chapter 5, verses 13 to 24, looking at what comes out of a spirit-led life. But now, it is applied to more specific situations here. It's mutual envy. If mutual envy and provocation are to be renounced, mutual aid is to be fostered. That's what he's saying here. The last part of chapter 5 is, be careful of devouring one another. So what's the flip side of that? One form of aid is that given to a member of one of the church who may have fallen into some transgressions. So that's when Paul gets into verse 1 here. And verse 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgressions, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, 
lest you too be tempted. I want to stop there. The first word, brothers. It's, uh, the Greek actually means brothers or sisters. But the original language actually means something a little bit more deeper. It's talking about close association of a group of persons having a well-defined membership. They know who's who. That's what he's talking to here. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgressions, so someone in that group has been caught. They've been caught in these transgressions. There's an inconsistency with the fruit of the Spirit that we talked about in chapter 5. Works of the flesh are becoming evident within their life. They've been caught in that. We're not talking about an habitual, ongoing situation here. We're talking about a person who's truly grieved. They've been caught. They're grieving the fact that they're sinning, which is, remember, a sign of the Spirit within you. If you aren't grieving the sin that's in your life, then I have a problem. And my heart is broken for you. But here we're talking about someone who's grieved and isolated actions. So these people aren't claiming, these people are Christians who've just fallen. They're not people who are claiming to be Christians, but living, not living like one. This is a one-off. And these persons are to be restored and not made to be like an outcast. Did you hear that? So who is supposed to work to restore this person? He, Paul continues on, you who are spiritual. People who have received the Holy Spirit, who are living accordingly. So those who have visibly, who are living, have a visible expression of the fruit of the Spirit within their life. Those are people who are defined as spiritual. The fruits of the Spirit are evident in their life. That's what it means to walk in the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to live by the Spirit. It's to have the fruit of the Spirit evident in your life. Those being controlled by the Holy Spirit, those who are spiritual are identical with those Christians who walk in the Spirit, are led by the Spirit, and keep in step with the Spirit. And I have to look at, I have to say this, as I was reading this passage, as I was studying it, I was flashed with some things in my mind of how much I struggle with this, personally. See, I have a bad habit of holding grudges, and I'm not the only one. I have a great memory for everything that's bad. <laughs> right? That's, that's me. I can recall almost every single thing that's negative in my life, but I, can't, I have a hard time remembering all the good things. Israel was like that in the desert. Recently, I was hurt by someone who called themselves a Christian. They are a Christian. I have no doubt that they aren't. And not just the idea that my feelings were hurt. Okay, we need some people, we need to get some thicker skin sometimes. Like, we're not talking about, oh, they hurt your feelings. We're talking about sinning. Those are two different things. And I was sinned against. And if I am a man whose spirit led... This passage has a lot to say to me. Not a lot, really. It's just one simple thing, but it's pretty heavy. 
I will seek to restore that man in the spirit of gentleness. Because if I claim to be a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives within me and I will not foster illness towards that person. I will foster the fruit of the Spirit. It will be evident in me. So how do they do that? They restore him. They return, a for, they return this person to their former condition or position. This individual is grieving their sin. They're, they're, they're full of grief. We've all met people like this. They're just beside themselves. God, I can't believe I've sinned against you. As David says in Psalm 21, his reaction to not only killing a wife's husband, but also sleeping with that wife, is what? Against you, O Lord, only have I sins. He's, this individual is grieved. They understand that they've sinned against the holy God. So those who are spiritual are to restore that person, to remind them of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, Paul, when I read this, I'm reminded of what Jesus says in Matthew 18, 15 to 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Keep in mind, it doesn't say keep it to yourself. It doesn't say go tell Jenny who sits beside you in the pew. There's no Jenny here, right? <laughs> it says to do what? To go talk to the person that has sinned against you. And go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Praise God when people repent. We don't hold it on them. But if he does not listen, you take it to step two. One or two others along with you, the very charge may be established by evidence of two or three witnesses. Step three, if he refuses to, tell, to listen to them, Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. There's a process that has several levels of appeal. One, then two, then everyone. The goal, though, is always to restore. Because we love them. Because God has shown you his love to you. Has poured out his grace and his mercy on your life. We want them to be in fellowship. We want the best for them. And it hurts when we see people walk down this road. So in gentleness, in wisdom, in humility, we plead make things right. We know that from back in chapter 5, if the Spirit is within them, that person will grieve over the sin and turn from it. God uses us as we interact with people to confront them. That's why we're called not to be Christian ninjas. We're called into a family. I'm going to coin that statement. <laughs> Gentleness is an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit and cannot coexist with harsh and severe, uh, severely critical spirits. And as a parent, that's another part that's kind of convicted me lately. We're, most of us are parents to some degree here. If not, lessons learned for those who aren't. 
I was convicted the other day as I was being very, very stern with one of my children. They quickly snapped back at me and said, why are you so harsh on me? It doesn't discount that what they were doing was wrong, right? But my response to what they were doing wrong brings up a good question. Was I being too harsh on them? Because again, the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit are what? Gentleness. So my response may have been not to be gentle. And I needed to repent of that. But that's what God is calling to us here in this text. As a person who is being led by the Spirit, I need vigilant and self-examination to be the prerequisites that are needed to be a restorer. When Jesus comes and takes, says to the people who are judging, take the plank out of your eye, he's saying, don't confront people. He's saying, examine your heart before you go do it so that you are a person who is walking in the Spirit. So we need to remember to keep watch of ourselves, as he says in verse 4. There's a realization that you and I are vulnerable to temptation. That vulnerability keeps us from self-righteousness. When I acknowledge that I am weak, but that God is strong, I rely on him and not on me. But we need to remember this. Restoration cannot be accomplished without confrontation. You ever think about that? If Paul's calling the church, those who are spiritual, to restore those who have fallen, that means there must be an aspect of confrontation. There must be a, 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 a bar that has been dropped. So we confront them. And this may require firm words and a stern rebuke. So back to my kid. Because I'm a parent. And I, you know what? You're not supposed to use kids in sermon illustrations, but I'm going with it. Don't tell them I said that. Someone's going to tell them that now. I know. If I am harsh, that's counter to what God has called us, called me to be. But I am called to be stern and to rebuke according to the word of God. Yet even especially in these cases, Martin Luther's advice to the pastor charged with setting, uh, setting a lot's brother back on the right path should be heeded as he says, run unto him and reaching out your hand, raise him up again, comfort him with sweet words and embrace him with motherly arms. We're called to restore with a spirit of gentleness. Why? It's quite simple. Think about what Christ has done for you. Think about how gentle he was, what he has done in your life. So if a person is in sin, restore him or her. Now, Paul does not speak to people who are receiving restoration. But just know that sometimes they may not want you to minister to them, right? How many times have you you've examined your heart? You've prayed about it. You've even sought wisdom from other people who are spiritual, saying, I don't know how to deal with this. 
And you go along with what Matthew, what Jesus says in Matthew 18, you confront that individual and you say, you know what, you've really sinned against me in this way. It hurts. And I want the best for you. I want us to restore our relationship. And their response might be, I don't know what you're talking about. Get away from me. But we're still called to do it. In gentleness. See, we're still called to minister to them. Why? Many think that they are independents. But if one is a Christian, he or she is not independents. We are interdependents. We are the body. The whole body of Christ is affected by one another's sin. Your sin always affects others. You're not an isolated man on an island. You are part of the body of Christ. The whole body is affected by your sin. If you are the one who is being led astray into destructive sin, receive help. That's why we're here. It is not only for your good, but for the good of the whole church. It's why Jesus said what he said in Matthew 18. The gospel teaches us to live how to live, but it also rescues us when we fall, fail to live the way we are supposed to. So as people who are spirit-led, who have the spirit within us, we are responsible to have a spirit-led life by seeking to restore those who have fallen. That's not where Paul leaves, though. He goes on, a spirit-led believer bears others' burdens. You see that in verses 2 to 5. The church of Jesus Christ, though, is, this is something we need to remember. It's not a charitable organization. It's not like the Red Cross or the Civic Club, such as the Rotary or the Kiwanis. It is rather a family of born-again brothers and sisters supernaturally knit together by the Holy Spirit in common fellowship of mutual edification and love. It doesn't mean that we don't care for those who are less fortunate, but let's define what the church is first. So he comes and he says, Burdens. And by this word, he's, he's using this word here. He's talking about hardships which are burdensome and exhausting. They're just, I, can't, I just can't. I, I just can't do it anymore. It's a heavy weight that someone has to carry for such a long time. And you can see that sometimes in people. Their shoulders are just... They're just, they visibly look like they're carrying a weight. And Paul addresses these things, four things that come out of this. Burdens are the reality of the Christian life. All Christians have burdens of different sizes and shapes and will vary in kinds. Maybe it's temptation. Maybe it's physical health. Maybe it's a mental disorder. Maybe it's family crisis. Maybe it's unemployment. No Christian is exempt from burdens. None. And we aren't called to do it alone. That's the second one. There's no such thing as a Christian ninja. We all have burdens, and God does not intend for us to carry them by ourselves in isolation from our brothers and our sisters. The idea that you think you can do it alone is, a mark, is not a mark of bravery. Hear me. It's a sign of pride. And you need to repent. 
because we're called to bear one another's burdens. We're called together as a family. The third one is this. We're all commanded to bear each other's burdens. All Christians have burdens. We aren't told to do it alone. God has made the local church body and its members to literally pastor one another, to care for one another. Luther said that the Christians must have broad shoulders and husky bones. I've got all of that covered. (laughs) In order to carry the burdens of our brothers and sisters. The command to bear one another's burdens in no way mitigates against the other New Testament imperatives to cast all our cares on Christ since he cares for us. I love that passage. That's 1 Peter 5, 7. God comforts. God's comfort was not given to Paul through his private prayer and waiting upon the Lord, but through the companionship of a friend and through the good news which he brought. Human friendship in which we bear one another's burdens, is part of the purpose of God for his people. So we should not keep our burdens to ourselves, but rather seek a Christian friend who will help to bear them with us. John Stott said that. The duty of bearing one another's burdens is stated in the imperative mood. It's not an option. If you call yourself a Christian, if you're a member here at Knollwood, this is not an option. And if you're not doing it, shame on you. It's not an option. Why would God command that? Did Jesus not do it for you? Did he not take our sins upon himself? Were we not told to do the very thing that we have experienced? The fourth thing is this. Bearing each other's burdens fulfills the law of Christ as Paul continues on here. And what's the law of Christ? It's conforming to the conduct and the character of Jesus himself. It's becoming more like Christ, which is the evidence of the Holy Spirit in you, showing more and more the fruit of the Spirit. And as we fulfill the law of Christ, hear this, you're also fulfilling the moral law of the Old Testament. You don't discount it. You don't get to throw it out. And as we do this, we need to examine ourselves, as he says here, test his own work. But what is a burden? I got a couple of ideas here to define what a burden is. Because I think we can misdefine it. And it's this. Think about it this way. A married couple has three children. And one day there's an accident. One of the parents dies in a car wreck. The remaining parent has kids who have needs. And then you remember, bear one another's burdens. A husband abandons his wife for another woman, leaving her with four kids. She needs help meeting daily responsibilities. Bear one another's burdens. An older faithful church member gets sick and is having a hard time. He or she needs help with meals, transportation, and the occasional living expenses. Bear one another's burdens. 
But what about bearing my own load? Because Paul clearly makes a distinction between the two because he uses two different words here. So Paul uses two different words. This, this one is talking about something like a, a soldier's knapsack. This is your responsibility before God. One that on that day when Jesus comes back, you will not be asked how your achievements compare to the persons behind you. Each of us will give an account of ourselves before a holy God. You don't get to blame other people. You, you don't get to stand before the throne of God and blame your siblings for their spoiledness or something like that. Think of it this way. A young person who constantly gets up late for work or school because he or she has stayed up late watching Netflix or playing games. Bear your own load. Get an alarm clock. Go to bed early. A guy who wastes his money on beer, cigarettes, and lottery tickets but refuses to find a job and, but keeps asking for money. Bear your own load. A parent working 12 hours a day, including Saturdays, not because they have to, but because they like to, and asks you to take their child to their sporting event instead of them. These are burdens that we are held responsible before God, and we are charged to carry them. So as people who have the spirits, we have, re, we have a responsibility to live a spirit-led life that is caring for each other's burdens. And then we get to this fun part here in verse 6. I was talking to my wife about this. I was like, hey, this is going to be a great passage, so I'm going to be quick on it. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. <laughs> Expository preaching can be bad sometimes. You've got to go through the verse, and it's there. So I'm going to lay it really quickly on you, because I'm the pastor, okay? I'm the one who's teaching in this passage. The role of the pastor-teacher is not to entertain or to use gimmicks to attract people to watch a performance. That's not my job. It's not your job either. That's not why we gather. He is called to reach the truths of the scriptures. Why? As a pastor, I am commanded to do so. 2 Timothy 4.2. But it's also because the Bible is what we need to hear. The giving that is done allows the pastor and the church to teach these truths without having to worry about how to get food on the table. That's why giving and offering is an act of worship. It's not you paying your membership dues. It's a commandment of God to do so. So that the gospel may be clearly proclaimed. It's also why it's important that you and the church know what the gospel is. So that if I come up here and I'm giving some sort of lie, that you can come and say, Pastor Nay, that's not what the Bible says. So that's what verse 6 is talking about. We're moving on to verse 7. The spirit-led believer seeks holiness in verses 7 to 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. 
So this idea in verse 7 is this turning up of the nose and mockery, contempt. God can't see me. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Don't let anybody pull the wool over your eyes. You can't turn up your nose at God. He's God. Paul's point was the same. God cannot be mocked. There will be a payday someday because a man reaps what he sows. He cannot outwit God. The crop you plant in the soil in the spring will inevitably sprout forth into the harvest of the fall. There's no farmer that plants his field and goes, oh, I didn't know that was there. You plant, you reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. And he continues on here. For the one who sows to his flesh will from that flesh reap corruption. That word there is destruction, decay, conveying the idea of, of a putrid corpse in the process of decomposition. We see here drawn out of a canvas of eternity a scenario of the end result of the two catalogs of virtues and vices that Paul is talking about back in chapter 5, verses 19 to 23. If we continue to indulge in the works of the flesh, moving deeper and deeper into the pit of depravity, then we can be certain of the harvest we will receive. It's corruption. It's decay. Decomposing putrid corpses. This is what makes the gospel so good. Because that's our due right. We sinned against the holy God. Our only right is hell itself. But Jesus Christ stepped down from his throne, paying the price for our sin, paying our debts on the cross. And three days later, he rose again so that anyone who confesses with their mouth that Jesus Christ is both Lord and Savior will be saved. And because of that salvation and the Holy Spirit that is working within us, we will reap, we will sow in the field of holiness. There's no faking it till you make it in the Christian life. You cannot mock God. You cannot. But what we are sowing is an outpouring of what is within us. Are we being led by the Spirit? John MacArthur says this Christian has only two fields in which he can sow. That of his own flesh and that of the Spirit. This is a divine law. You reap what you sow. If you sow in the Spirit, you will reap in the Spirit. If you sow in the flesh, you will reap in the flesh. To sow to one's flesh is to pander to it, to give into it, to coddle it instead of crucifying it, instead of mortifying it. Because the Holy Spirit in you would not allow you to continue to go down that road. So the old adage is true. Sow a thought, reap an act. 
Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Holiness is a harvest. The seeds are mainly thoughts and deeds. So John Stott summarizes it powerfully by saying this, every time we allow our mind to harbor a grudge, again, back to the illustration I used a few points ago, with me, nurse a grievance, entertain an impure fantasy, allow it to wallow in self-pity, we are sowing to the flesh. Every time we linger in bad company, whose insidious influence we know we cannot resist. Every time we lie in bed when we ought to be up and praying. Every time we read pornographic literature. Every time we take a risk that stains our self-control, we are sowing, sowing, sowing to the flesh. That's John Stott. Some Christians sow to the flesh every day and wonder why they do not reap holiness and victory and blessing. Let me provide some examples. When a dating couple gets caught up in the sensuality of the moment and engages in sexual activity outside of marriage, then they are sowing to the flesh. When a man fantasizes about taking control of an organization and decides to scheme and and cheat to get to the top, then he is sowing seeds of destruction, not only for others, but for his own soul. When a woman secretly despises another woman in the church without ever seeking reconciliation, she is sowing to the flesh, hurting her own soul in the fellowship of the church. When a husband and wife allow bitterness and resentment to build in a marriage without ever trying to resolve their differences and forgive one another, then they are sowing seeds to the flesh, hurting themselves and the whole family. We're sowers. So what are you sowing to today? Remember what John Stott said, holiness is a harvest. Whether we reap it or not depends almost entirely on what we sow. God cannot be mocked. Your sins will find you out. Choose your field wisely. Holiness is a harvest. And I'm not saying you can't go home and watch your Netflix. You got to think it through, though. What are you feeding? What are you sowing? What field is it? So Paul's message to the Galatian, oh, as people who have the spirits, we have the responsibility to live a spirit-led life and we'll sow, have a harvest that is holy. The last thing is this, spirit-led believers seek to do good and Paul continues on, he says this, don't quit. Doing good in the sense is the same thing as fulfilling the law of Christ. So why did Paul feel it necessary to persist in reminding the Galatian believers to continue to practice doing good? Why would he come up and do that again? Because we're lazy. We're naturally lazy in the duties of love. 
And many stumbling blocks hinder and put off even the well-disposed. We might, we meet with many unworthy, many ungrateful people. The vast number of the needy overwhelms us. We are drained by paying out on every side. Our warmth is damped by the coldness of others. And finally, the whole world is full of hindrances which turn us aside from the right path. Therefore, Paul does well to confirm our efforts so that we do not faint through weariness. So Paul's message to the Galatians is simply this, don't quit. Don't stop. Don't give up. Faced with the temptations of legalism on the one hand and libertarianism on the other side, many of Paul's converts in Galatia were beginning to lose hearts. Have you ever felt like that? I feel like that. I look at the world outside and how liberal it is. I look at sometimes how easy it is just to be a legalist and I get weary. And Paul says, don't quit. Don't give up. And we counter that feeling by reminding each other of the good news of Jesus Christ, that Christ died for our sins and rose again. It's the basis of everything that we do. As people who have the Spirit, we have a responsibility to live a Spirit-led life and will continue to do good, not because it's winning favor with God, but because it's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit within us, an outpouring of what we have experienced. So what? Remember that question from before? So what does it mean to live a Spirit-led life? What does it look like practically to walk by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, and to live by the Spirit? What are the results of a Spirit-filled life? Paul answers it in these verses. And what does it look like? A Spirit-filled church is a group of Christians who are being led by the Holy Spirit. God doesn't judge a church that is Spirit-filled by its music style or the instruments that it uses or doesn't use. God judges a church that is a spirit filled by his individuals who are being led by the Holy Spirit. And God lays out what that looks like. Let us be a spirit-led people, marked by gentle restoration, humble burden-bearing, generous sharing, personal holiness, and practical goodness. This is the life of the Spirit. Were these qualities not embodied in Jesus? They were perfectly. Jesus restored us from our broken relationship with God. He continues to restore our souls. He, he carried our greatest burden, the crushing weight of sin. He kept God's law in our place and then died in our place, removing the penalty of sin that was upon us so that there is no more condemnation for those who trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate generous giver who made us rich through his poverty. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. 
Jesus constantly sowed in the Spirit, lived a life of perfect righteousness, and reaped eternal glory. Jesus was a prophet, mighty in word and deed, and went about doing good, as we see in Acts 10, 38. Jesus is our example. Jesus gives us the example, and he gives us the Spirit to live out these responsibilities. As people who have the Spirit, we have a responsibility to live a Spirit-led life. Not because it's some sort of another check mark that we do, but it's because of who we are. We are people, if you have confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, who have the Spirit that lives within you, and we're called to act accordingly. So my prayer for me and my prayer for you is that we would be a people who are marked by gentle restoration, humble restoration, humble burden-bearing, generous giving, and personal holiness with practical goodness. Let us be a people who are being led by the Spirit because the Holy Spirit lives within us. Let us continue to worship our awesome God.